The first question I ask teachers when I work with them every day of my life is, so have you ever been to a dinner party and someone asked you what you do for a living? Mm -hmm. And they all start to laugh. And the reason they all laugh is because the answer is always the same. You tell someone you're a world language teacher and inevitably someone says, I took X language for exactly. four years and I can can't, not can't. speak a word yep, of it. Exactly. Right? Or they remember one <laughs> Maria toca la guitarra en el bosque de Chapultepec and that's all they remember because it was memorized. Je me suis fait faire une armoire. Exactly. <laughs> you're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. We speak with Amanda Seewald of Learning Kaleidoscope about early language learning, music, and advocacy. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media development manager. Today, Amanda Seewald joins us in the studio. Amanda is an instructional coach and expert in multilingual curriculum and instruction. She is also the author and director of Maracas Language Programs, an interactive language learning experience for preschool and elementary age children. We will talk about how her program incorporates music into language instruction. Tierra, agua y sol. Tierra, agua y sol. Para hacer crecer una planta o para hacer crecer una flor. Yo necesito tierra, agua y sol. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Amanda. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. And we are excited to have you. So this um, episode actually combines um, two previous episodes that we've had on our podcast, um, where we talked about language outreach in K-12 and also the importance about music and um, languages and cultures. So before we hear a little bit more about Maracas, maybe um, you can share a little bit with our listeners about your personal background. What languages do you speak? How did you end up with those languages? What got you interested? Well, language is my passion in every way, shape, and form. And though I grew up in a monolingual household mm -hmm. and no one in my family spoke another language, I loved language from the first time I was exposed to it, which was actually when I was in middle school. Hmm. It was already late. Okay. Um, and I started with Spanish. I loved it. Uh, and I just, it came to me very simply. And so in high school, I actually had to advocate to be able to take two languages. I was in a small high school. Hmm. And I ended up taking Spanish and French. I would go to the community college on the, in the evenings to take French just oh, well. because I really wanted to. Yeah. So by the time I got to my senior year of high school, I knew that this was really something that I needed to do. I yeah. was dreaming in Spanish. I was feeling it. I needed to challenge myself. And I was torn between taking Japanese and Russian. Mm -hmm. And I lived near Rutgers. So what I did was I applied. I was able to apply as a high school student to take college-level courses. Oh, nice. And I had a last-period study. I'll never forget it. And I would go down to New Brunswick uh -huh. a few days a week after school yeah. and take Japanese. Huh. And so I enrolled at Rutgers as a high school senior to take courses. Uh, and then I decided that was my pathway. I, wanted to, I didn't know what else I wanted to do, but I knew huh. I wanted to be involved in languages, cultures, and people and getting to know people around the world. I did have an opportunity to study abroad while in high school okay. in Spain. And I wanted to do more of that. Mm -hmm. So then from there, I went to NYU undergrad. I studied Romance Languages and East Asian Studies. Mm -hmm. And everyone said, wow, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> and I thought, well, diplomacy would be great. I'd love to yeah. do all of those wonderful things. And then I took a micro and macroeconomics course that was required to get into the, uh, the graduate school that I wanted to go uh -huh. to for international affairs. And I said, okay, maybe not that. <laughs> 
so I took a step back and I said, well, I, you know, I know I want to be involved in international something. And yeah. I love my languages. I had studied in Japan on a national security education program mm-hmm. scholarship mm-hmm. in the first year of the program which, by the way, everyone should know, is now called the Boren Scholars. Mm -hmm. And it is a wonderful program, especially for undergraduate students and students who are very interested in studying in countries that are not uh, your typical countries, that are uh, in places that are of national security interest. Mm -hmm. But then what I ended up doing was uh, I went to Washington, D.C., and I discovered the dual language immersion programs locally there in Arlington, Virginia. And while working for a a nonprofit organization focused on at-risk students, I then decided I would go and figure out more about dual language immersion. Mm-hmm. And I realized that if education could look like that, I mm-hmm. wanted in. Yeah. So I pursued my master's degree in multilingual, multicultural curriculum and instruction at George Mason University. Okay. And did all of my field experience in the Fairfax County Public Schools and mm-hmm. Arlington County Public Schools. Ended up teaching third grade in the dual language immersion program in Arlington. Oh, cool. I loved it. It was it was exactly what I wished that my education had mm-hmm. been like. And yeah. what I know now is really what the future of education should be here in the United States. Yeah. So after teaching there for a few years, I, I got pregnant and I, I was uh, really excited. My husband and I were excited about it, but we also knew we needed to move closer to home. Mm-hmm. I ended up moving closer to New Jersey. We moved back to New Jersey. Okay. And in doing that, I also realized that I, my daughter was never going to have the type of language learning experience that she could have in mm-hmm. those Virginia public schools. So I decided I was going to build something for my for her, and that's Great. where Maracas came in. Okay, awesome. I developed Maracas under a local grant uh, from huh. my county. It was called a Heart Grant: History, Education, and Art Reaching Thousands. Okay. I applied for a small seed grant and collaborated with a local public library. I had fifteen open spots and had forty five families show up, and oh, I said, wow. "Wait a minute, huh. there's something here." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I decided that I needed to do something to make it more available. I worked uh, with the local recreation department. And started offering courses, parent-child interactive courses, mm. um, for Spanish language, mm-hmm. focused on multiple intelligences, very focused on music. And uh, every day I found myself building to keep up with my students mm-hmm. and my daughter. And from there, I brought it into the, as I noticed that a lot of parents were going back to work, and I knew that that interactive piece needed to grow into more of an independent learning experience for yeah. the kids. I also went to the local preschools in my area. And brought it into the schools and Hmm. began teaching in the local schools. And that's what I did for many years. From there, uh, I was told that I should uh, consider franchising. But my heart wasn't in franchising this as a business. I wanted to see language education for young learners grow. Mm -hmm. Preschool and up. I felt that we needed to start as soon as possible. And so I decided to publish my materials as cheaply as possible. So that a teacher could walk into a classroom and have exactly what he or she needed mm-hmm. in order to start right away. Mm-hmm. And in order to publish that, I knew that I needed to also publish my music that I had been writing for years. Mm. Uh, though I don't play an instrument, my <laughs> instrument was my voice. Yeah. And I was able to take content from each lesson and embed it into popular children's songs and my own tunes that I made up while my daughter was in the bathtub. And uh, we recorded actually here in Ithaca huh. uh, at Rep Studios. Uh, the first CD, and then several years later, recorded the second one, which was a, another book that I published focused on science education okay. in Spanish. And that's that's what took me on this journey to then grow out of that 
a, a program where I'm developing curriculum materials, mm-hmm. developing teachers, mm-hmm. and helping uh, education professionals, specifically language education professionals, grow their um, their strategies mm-hmm. and their capacity to uh, to teach young children. That's wonderful. Um, so Maracas is currently only available the materials that you've developed in Spanish, or do you also have other languages? Right now, it's only available in Spanish. Okay. It's been my goal for many years. Mm. to. I, I get asked by Chinese teachers all the time, mm. when I'm going to do it in Mandarin, when am I going to do it in French? I will yeah. say that several years ago, when we did a summer camp, because we use the Maracas materials in summer camps, um, I, I had a French teacher who wanted to do it. So we actually sat and translated many of the songs huh. and the lessons into French just okay. for use in that yeah. summer camp. And it is one of my goals to, in the second mm-hmm. publication, to release yep. it in a few other languages. But what I will tell you is I'm very excited. I've, the characters that I developed as a part of the program, mm-hmm. there are little characters who were icons in the book to represent the different intelligences. Mm-hmm. But I actually mm-hmm. developed them into characters with names and backgrounds. Yeah, and what I've been working on for years is moving that into a direction that where we could have an animated series, oh, fun. and to introduce those characters uh, who learn all different ways, yeah. and who are so interested in language in the world. Um, I've intru- I'm introducing an easy reader series mm-hmm. uh, that will be digital and paper books, uh, trade books for students uh, who are learning to read, specifically literacy focused classrooms yeah. uh, in Spanish, in English. They'll both be, they'll be published for huh. L's for English language learners. Mm-hmm as well as Spanish language learners, and hopefully down the road in a few other languages as well. And that's coming up soon. Then tell us a little bit, now that you've given us a a bunch of the background, um, what is it about music that makes it a good vehicle to teach about language and about culture? You know, you talk about starting to write these songs just while your daughter was in the bathtub and that sort of thing. So how did that grow into building so much of the curriculum around it? Sam, I'm a musical learner. I've Mm -hmm. known that about myself my whole life. I'm a kinesthetic musical rhythmic learner. And I always found one of the best stories I can tell you is that my high school Spanish teacher was actually a dancer. And I remember vividly that she would uh, dance around the room. She would move around the room. And even if she was conjugating a verb, she was moving. And I felt that rhythm. And I remembered feeling the rhythm of the Spanish language as a part of what helped me learn it. Mm -hmm. I'm also a musical person. I grew up doing musicals and singing and dancing. And that was a part of who I was. And I felt like it really helped me think about the language. Um, so for children, I know how important music can mm-hmm. be. I know how brain function is, is expanded through music and how the synapses in the brain can actually function differently through music, especially at an early age. And the reason that I chose to focus um, on, the, on music in my program was to be able to embed content in a meaningful way. But then it took it a step further. And when I had the opportunity to record my music, I was thrilled to work with musicians who could help me think about how the tunes that I had created or worked on for so many years represented different genres of music. Mm-hmm. And I cannot tell you how thrilling it was for me as we sat there and started to put background music to things I had been singing by yeah. myself with my students <laughs> in my classroom for uh-huh. so many years and started to hear all different types of folk music and started to hear salsa and started to hear all different kinds of music come out of it. We had really incredible funky tunes that were coming out of what I used to just make up by myself. Um, But what I truly feel is that you can use, you can use music to, um, to find out about culture and to understand people. You can use the music of a culture to understand that. But also as an educator, I believe that embedding 
information and content in rhythm and in movement will help our students really see and understand and recall the information, Mm -hmm. even if they're not the strongest musical learners. And I learned that as well. I'll never forget teaching a group of kindergartners and I was dancing and moving around doing my own little vaudeville act. And a little kid looked at me like I had three heads. I'll never forget the look on her face. And I was so thankful that I had planned this in a multiple intelligences way because at the part of each class, the students were drawing. They were preliterate. So they would draw what Uh they understood that we learned about in class that day. Now, she did not want to get up and dance and sing with me or with the other kids. But when I asked her to sit and draw what she Mm -hmm. understood and tell me Mm -hmm. in Spanish the pieces that she understood, she was able to do it without even batting Mm -hmm. an eye. Nice. And to me, that is more of an indicator of yeah. the way that we, we learn may not be the only way. Sure. But it is important to expose all children to all different yeah. ways of learning. Ah, wonderful. And we did, we did have fun. Making we, oh, we had a great time. To, and so for, for anyone listening who, who may or may not know where the connection is with Amanda, uh, I was one of the musicians who worked on uh, the second Maracas we arranged CD, my entire album. science CD, my yeah. entire science album. It was incredible. <laughs> and on that album in particular, we really focused on different genres of music. Yeah. Well, it was one of the things that helped. For me, was someone coming in not, not being a Spanish speaker, uh, one of the things that helped me sort of identify each, uh, what each song was about and, and the subject matter and it, it, to make it not just a block of of songs i didn't understand but able to as as we were going sort of identify oh this is you know this one's talking about uh, density and things that yep. float and things that sink and, right? and, and relating the music to that so that was that was a treat for me what i do with teachers now i often to get them to understand the value of embedding culture in into um music and mm-hmm. and embedding content into music is to we use my solido liquido gas oh, yes. song which was all about the three states of matter mm. and it, it became almost mm. like a steel drum song by the time we were done it was just it was incredible to see how you could take any piece of music any content and any rhythm and turn it into something that could connect to other other things other mm-hmm. th- feelings mm-hmm. and that's what was so exciting for me solido liquido gas Great. Well, it sounds like a very successful approach. I, I've I've found that even people who are not musical learners yeah. are drawn to it. And I know that here I am 20 years later, almost 20 years later, and I see that I still have students who are now all grown up singing mm-hmm. my songs. <laughs> and that's a very exciting feeling. Oh, absolutely. I also had the beautiful opportunity to bring my students in as the actual vocalists on oh, a lot cool. of this, along with fun me. the first um the first album i had nine students and brought them all to ithaca oh wow <laughs> for the weekend to record and the second album what we were able to do was i came up and recorded my vocals but then we did this the kids in new york city at another um studio mm-hmm. but again just using their their voices was an incredible mm-hmm. tool and now being able to take that take their voices as the background voices, pull my vocals out yeah. mm-hmm. and put in um, some other voices that will really help yeah. us move the, move the story forward for La Clase del Mundo, mm-hmm. which is the name of the series of books and the animated series okay. that will be coming out. Awesome. You talked a little bit about, of the, um, about the importance of advocacy. Um, can you 
tell us a little bit more. I know you've been involved um, with the state association, the Foreign Language um, Educators Association in New Jersey, and you're also serving on the board of JNCL right now. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you do there and why why it is important to advocate for language? Absolutely. I, I found that I've been a language advocate when I was asked this a while back at the ACTFL conference, mm -hmm. the, our national association. And I was asked to speak about this. And in reflecting about that, I realized that it really started for me in high school mm. when I was told by my principal that I was trying to do something that he just wouldn't allow me to do, which mm. was to miss one day a week of French to take a science lab. Yeah. Even though they had approved it, my French teacher said I could do it because I was doing well in the class. Yeah. Um, and so I had to advocate from that point on mm. to be able to take languages, which in our country and in our culture, unfortunately, have never been looked at as a main focal point of mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. uh, we're always a special, right? Yep. And so from that point on, then I was in college and I had to advocate because in the first year of the NSEP program, when I applied, mm -hmm. Uh, I had a dean at my university who wouldn't sign off on my application oh. because they thought I was going to become a spy for the Defense Department. <laughs> so I was told that I couldn't apply. And I ended up going and advocating, and that dean was told to sign my application. <laughs> I was accepted in that first year of the program, and then the program was almost cut huh? federally. Yeah. And I was asked by the Institute of International Education to go on a local television network mm -hmm. and come to their meetings. Mm -hmm and go to Washington and as a high, as a college student yeah. to go and speak about the value of studying abroad. And I did. And I think that that's really where this all mm -hmm. came from. Yeah. And then once I started teaching and I found how important this was and how I watched children growing up with language, I knew that that's what I needed to do. And so the advocacy with, with JNCL Nicholas began 10 years ago. I was the advocacy representative for Flench for the mm -hmm. Foreign Language Educators of New Jersey and went every year to the Legislative Advocacy Days in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. where I would meet with uh, federal legislators in Congress, both uh, in the Senate and in the House, focused on world language education. And it was never a, it was never a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. It was always a bipartisan issue because language learning and the ability to speak and communicate to other people of other cultures in other languages was an, an issue of national security importance as yeah. well. So we had a whole bunch of different ways to focus on this. And I thought that, well, my voice in this isn't really going to matter. Huh. But what I found over time was it was about the relationships as an advocate that I yeah. was able to build in the late Senator Lautenberg's office, um, in Congressman Rush Holt's office, who were both from New Jersey and were both national figures on language education. Mm -hmm. And we were able to really make a difference. Uh, and I found that that's been happening even at the state level. A few years ago, I'm not sure if you're aware of the Seal of Biliteracy, which is now uh -huh. something that is available in so many states, yep. which is changing the way that language programs work. And it's all from advocacy. It's yep. all from the type of advocacy that we've all been doing nationally as educators for the last many years. Now each state can really have a way to recognize that growth. Yeah. And then universities and, uh, and companies can sure. see sure. what a student can do, what a person can do. The Seal of Biliteracy in New Jersey was a big challenge. Uh -huh. And uh, as an advocate, I was asked to step in in the middle of the process, and Governor Christie was uh, in charge in New Jersey. And we did not yeah. think it was going to be yeah. a favorable response yeah. to getting a law signed. Um, a week before we had our last chance to get it signed, I was called down to Trenton to meet with one of his attorneys. Huh. And I feel like as an advocate, and this is one thing I can tell anyone who's interested in advocating for language education yeah. or anything, the most important thing you can do is find out who you're meeting with. Mm -hmm what they know, what their background is, and go in there ready to speak to people 
based on what you know their information is, what mm-hmm. you know a little bit about their story. And I looked up this attorney to figure something out. Sure. Found out that he and I both went to NYU. Huh. And uh, I thought, well, I'll just tuck that in my back pocket. And yeah. Just see what happens with <laughs> that. I showed up for the meeting. There were a, a, a lobbyist and a few other educators there. And I have this black portfolio that I carry. And it mm-hmm. happens to have the NYU emblem on it. And it seemed like a silly little thing. I wasn't even thinking that I had it with me. I yeah. sat down, put it down on the table. The attorney came in, sat down next to me, put the same exact one on the table <laughs> next to me. And we started to laugh. And I said, oh, look, another fellow Violet. <laughs> and from that point on, huh. the entire tenor mm-hmm. of the conversation yep. changed. I, I was given the opportunity, because we had a connection, to talk about the value and the importance of language education starting at an early age, the importance of the seal of biliteracy. Mm-hmm. And somehow, that next week, uh, Governor Christie signed the seal of biliteracy huh. into law in New Jersey and vetoed mandatory recess for children. I cannot wow. guarantee <laughs> that it was that conversation. Sure. But I will tell you that you just never know. And so what oh, I can man. tell you about the importance of advocacy huh. now at serving as president-elect of JNCL Nicholas yeah. is really a dream come true for me mm-hmm. because it's been my role for longer than I realized mm-hmm. to go out there and advocate. And what I can say to educators who are sitting in their classroom saying, well, I can't do that, mm-hmm. is that you absolutely can. And I tell teachers that I work with around this country every day that the advocacy starts in your classroom. Yeah. What you do in your four walls to help students love language and understand yeah. the value of language learning is what is, is the best advocacy that we can have. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to be that teacher that no one forgets, to be the one that helps a, a student realize that learning a language is a key to understanding so many other things. It's scientific, scientific research. It's yeah. a key to international relations. It's a key to anything that you want to study. You have a better opportunity if you're learning it with a second language or third. Yep. Wonderful. Well, I think all language teachers here are in very good hands with you coming, kind of you to, say. coming to the board of JNCL. Nicholas, this is wonderful. Um, before we sign off here, going back to uh, Maracas, where can people find out more information? How, how can they tap into your brain? <laughs> where can they find those materials, those songs, and sing along themselves? Well, thank you. Um, so Maracas materials are available through my website, mm-hmm. maracas123.com. Okay. Uh, and additionally on Amazon, uh, and we will be having it digitally available momentarily. <laughs> I'm working on that. And uh, in addition to that, uh, my my work as an as an educational consultant is through Learning Kaleidoscope, which is a partner to Maracas. Mm-hmm. And I am constantly traveling around this country, presenting at national conferences, and also meeting with teachers. I just came off a week of meeting and doing professional development for teachers all over the country, mm-hmm. and I enjoy it. It's it is truly my passion. So. Um, Reach out to me and what I can say. I say to all of the people I work with all the time, once you have me once, you've got me for life. You're stuck with me. <laughs> so reach out and I will always respond. My email is very simple. It's amanda at maracas123.com. And I am always eager to hear stories from teachers and find out how I can assist in mm-hmm. helping us to continue to grow language education so that the 21st century is a multilingual century for children in the United States and that we can grow a multilingual citizenry who, you know, capable of building the bridges that we so desperately need in our country. Wonderful. Yes, yes. to that. <laughs> we need, we need um, like applause buttons here. I know. I got, maybe for ne- next season, I'll work on some sound effects. So was that get, a good sound? Get, sound oh, bite? that's okay, great. Good. You Excellent. kidding me? Well, no, this was amazing. It's wonderful to hear. I mean, for any time, right? Because it's, it, this kind of advocacy is always important. Right now, it's really important. Yeah, it is a challenge yeah. that we face. And when I'm working with teachers and I hear, the pushback, I hear 
that they their students say, why do we have to learn this? Everyone should speak English. I It's very challenging. I, I'm, sure. I'm on my soapbox advocating for world language education in an environment that is crushing uh, the concept of unity mm-hmm. and community and globalization. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that we know that the future is global, the yeah. current, the present is global. Yes. And, and if we don't help our students achieve that, um, I have a very close colleague, Greg Roberts, um, from Utah. He was involved with the Utah Dual Language Immersion Program. And his quote, he's quoted as saying, um, monolingualism is the illiteracy of the 21st huh. century. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it couldn't be a truer statement. Yep. And it is so important that we find ways. And I think you'll find that we have such incredible bipartisan support to grow this. Mm-hmm. We have a piece of legislation going through um, Congress right now called the World Language Advancement and Readiness Act. And it was presented in the House by a bipartisan group of legislators and will soon be presented in the Senate, it, you can make a difference. And, um, and I think that what we need to remember is that we wear many hats in our lives every day. Yeah. You know, I'm a mother, mm-hmm. I'm a business owner, I'm an educator, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a community member and, every, and I'm a citizen of the United States. Yeah. And I think that if we look at the different hats we wear, the different pathways we walk on and the different people we meet day to day, we can find ways to advocate in ways you wouldn't think of, mm-hmm. just by interacting with those people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for all the important work that you do and for inspiring others to put different hats on themselves. Thank you. Thank you for the yeah. opportunity. Oh, to it's talk great today. to see you again. Next week, we will have Charlene Polio with us in the studio. Dr. Polio is Professor of Second Language Studies at Michigan State University. She will be on campus as part of our monthly LRC speaker series, giving a talk titled, Are Some Languages Really More, Quote, Difficult to Learn? We will extend our conversations about language difficulty with her on next week's episode. Until then, auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or look for Cornell LRC on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners. And do stay tuned for our next episode.